0: Thank for having me. Um, so I'm going to use this one. Is that okay? Uh, so I was asking some of the young men uh, before the Sunday school hour some sermon ideas, and uh, and I have actually changed my sermon uh, as a result of that. Some of their sermon ideas, which, which I didn't take, was uh, studying the Nephilim, the 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 giants of the earth, and uh, and then, of course, more straightforwardly, blue or green was their sermon idea. Blue or or, or green, really, that's literally all they wrote. Uh, so what I want to do, if you have a Bible, um, uh, turn to First Peter. We're going to look at chapter 1. And uh, we're just going to look at verses 3 to 9. And uh, as you turn there, remember Peter is... Uh, Peter's writing to this group of people that are, are really struggling, right? They are exiles. They have been uh, kicked out of their home for religious reasons, persecution. They're cut off from the land. They're cut off from their inheritance. They feel cut off from all sources of security, hope. You know, there are people that are longing for something that's stable and true and lasting. And, and in many ways, I think the, the audience to whom Peter was writing is a whole lot like what we are, which is homesick people. It's people that know that no matter how hard they work or how successful their children, how much they earn and how much uh, cultural credibility and cachet they achieve, that they're never fully happy, that this isn't ever home, that no vacation, no promotion, no graduation, no marriage, no child, none of it ever fills our hearts. And it really does disappoint and frustrate because we really have been taught that this earth should be enough. That all that Northern Virginia offers should satisfy. We're always wondering why it doesn't. If you turn there, let me read to you. And uh, as you turn there, I think the question that you have to ask yourself is, so what is it that Peter's trying to communicate? So if we're all homesick people, Christians, non-Christians alike, What is it that will center us and bring us home? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. So this is God's word. It's without error in any part. It is for his glory and, and for our good. So last summer I read this book uh, called Moonwalking with Einstein. And uh, maybe some of you have heard of this book. It's all about Memory. And it's about this this reporter who began to get interested in these memory Olympics, the memory games. And he said, what is it about these people that can remember so prodigiously these incredible feats of memory skill? And so the book is not just kind of a tour de force of memory and memory tools and techniques, but but also then of this author entering into the memory Olympics, the training that he did to, to prepare for it. and. You know, it's, you have two minutes to look at a deck of cards and then you have to recite what all 52 were and how many decks of cards can you imagine, uh, remember in order within two to three minutes. It's just stunning things like that. And, uh, you know, things that make us all say, I'd, I'd love to have that kind of memory. Uh, this this little microphone sort of. Uh, and uh, no, it takes me back to my days on stage. I know it's the vaudeville, vaudeville thing. It's It's hard. Uh, But one of the things that I learned in this Moonwalking with Einstein book is that, you know, there, there really isn't this thing as a perfect memory. And there isn't even such a true thing as photographic memory. That it really is all like hard work. And one of the things that he continues to implore his readers is to say is that every one of you could have a memory. That you could memorize your entire grocery list and just go and do it. You could... Memorize incredible series of numbers. All of your friends' cell phone numbers. You don't have to rely on that cell phone to, to do that anymore. But, but one of the ways he says that is you always have to be growing. You always have to be learning and trying and working. You've got to work the elastic of the brain, that is. And I, I began to think how similar that is in some ways to our Christian faith. That it's easy to just say, i got a pretty good base knowledge. And I have a good foundation. And I want to grow a little. But what I find often in my life, and perhaps in yours too, is that it's challenging to keep growing. It's challenging to keep deepening. It's challenging to keep appreciating Jesus more, or the Father more, or the Spirit's work more. And so I think Peter's saying that too. What will allow us to keep growing, to face the tragedies that afflict all of us, the suffering that's inevitable, the chaos that surrounds us? What is it? I think Peter's answer to us is pretty straightforward this morning. I think what Peter's suggesting is that, uh, that when we understand God's love for us in Christ, we'll grow. And, and so how do we get to that place where we, where we deepen in our understanding, where we deepen in our growth? I, th- I want to very humbly suggest three ways, three points this morning. First, the reality of suffering deepens our need for the gospel. The reality of suffering deepens our need for it. And then the power of faith deepens our connection to the gospel. So we see the need through suffering. We connect with the gospel through faith. And then finally, that God's love deepens our appreciation for the gospel. So how do we go from needing it to connecting to it to loving it? And that's where I think what Peter's trying to say is, well, suffering and then faith And then God's love. You see, it's pretty straightforward. You see where I'm going there? No bells and whistles. No smoke and mirrors. Here we go. So let's look first at at this reality of suffering and how that might cause our need for the gospel to grow. How would that deepen our understanding? Look first at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice what he's saying about all suffering. He says immediately and importantly, that all suffering's under God's control. That's a challenging thing to say. You see that for a little while, that is, he's saying that suffering is always limited, both in its scope and in its duration, but then it's if necessary. Now why put that little clausal comment there? He's saying suffering is necessary. And he's saying that in that typically Semitic way of saying it through the back door, meaning suffering's inevitable. Suffering communicates to us that, uh, that we continue to need God, that God's indispensable. All right, so, so we see immediately that suffering is under God's control, but also that suffering fulfills God's purposes. Don't you see that in verse 7? So the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though was tested by fire. What's he saying here? He's saying suffering has a purpose in our lives. It's not just that God's in control of it. It's that God is using it. And he's using it, he's saying here, to say that, you know, your identity as a child of the king, as a brother of the suffering one, of course involves suffering too. And he's saying this this does a good thing for us. What he's saying to us is that it proves the genuineness of our faith, right? It proves that we truly have faith, so that when difficulties come, we just don't say, I'm through with you. I'm done with you. I don't want that life. I want an upper middle class life. I want the bourgeoisie life. I don't want challenges or suffering. And if I do, he better remove that immediately. He better answer my prayers in the way in which I say, when I say it, how I say it. Because if he doesn't, I really have to ask, why have I been good for all these years? I I mean, why have I been obedient? I mean, why pray? Why be faithful? What the Lord is saying here through Peter, of course, is that suffering like very little else in our lives reveals what's really going on in our hearts. Suffering like very little else in our lives shows what we're actually believing in. And when it pulls back that little curtain and shows us the truth of our suspicion toward God and our antipathy toward his ways and our love of control and comfort, our need for pleasure and if any of those things are interrupted or threatened or compromised, frankly, we get pretty angry, We're frustrated. And so we miss God's purpose. So you see God's control and then God's purpose in suffering and then finally God's blessing through it. Look at that same verse. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may what? May be found to result in praise and glory and honor. See what he's stressing here is that suffering really is used by God to make us more Christ-like, to make us more in love with him, even as we rest upon, depend more deeply upon his love for us. Now, I know this is like easy for me to say, right? Easy for any preacher to get up here and say, "Ah, oh, suffering, God controls it, God's using it. God will bless you through it. And you all look at me with those flinty eyes, that Northern Virginia hostility, <laughs> And you say, well, sure, maybe for small things, but what about my parents in their advanced age and their declining mental abilities or my children's rebelliousness or our infertility or my inability to get married or why I can't seem to get through high school without being bullied or why I can't seem to find a girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it is that's making you stay awake at night and say, where is God this? Where has God gone from this? See, in all these ways, we're being allowed to see what's true about ourselves. And I know in my life that that's often quite exposing. So when I went through like this serious health issue in uh, 2007, I found something really odd happening to me, and that was that I began to listen to Christian music. (laughs) And I really disdained Christian music to that point, and that's a true verb to use there. I disdained it. I know that's offensive to probably 80% of you. I'm very, very sorry. But when I was so sick, and I was like losing my mind, when I was at this, this lowest point of my health in my life, when I could put on this truth, these hymns that Christians have sung for three to 400 years, and particularly, I just kept going back to this hymn about um, I am bound, I am bound for the promised land. I'm bound on Jordan's Stormy Banks. Maybe you know that song. And, you know, I appreciate that song, whatever. Like, I'm a pastor, I sing it, right, whatever. But suddenly I needed that song. Because suddenly all that the world had offered me had begun to be shown for what it really was. Because all the things that I found secure and confident, my mental abilities and my family connections, you know, my prowess as a communicator, when all those things were compromised... Suddenly I realized I really needed heaven. And I really longed for heaven suddenly. Something that I wasn't familiar with, that homesickness. You see, God was using that suffering, that affliction physically to say, maybe you're trying to sink your roots just too deeply in this world. Maybe you are too at home in Norfolk. Maybe you love your house and all of its accoutrements. Maybe you love respectability too much. Maybe you have lost sight of my purpose for you, which is conformity to the image of my son. See how that might could be for you, that the reality of suffering deepens your need for the gospel. Suddenly I needed Jesus. I needed his spirit in me. I needed the Father's protection of me. Okay. We can appreciate that, but how do we connect with that? I mean, that all sounds, frankly, pie in the sky. Right? Yeah. Embrace it. I, I wish I could, Pastor. Because what we're talking about next is that the power of faith. It's the power of faith which connects us to the gospel. And this is often the missing element. This is often the missing element. And Peter recognizes this for these suffering, struggling, persecuted, harassed, harried Christians. And he says, okay, I know it's hard for you to grab hold of and appropriate what suffering's doing. How do you do that? It's through faith. And notice what he says in verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded what? Through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, what he's speaking to here, of course, and we all know this, it seems obvious, but it's the necessity of faith. And we see the necessity of faith when we're saying, all right, what just happened there? He's saying it's faith that keeps us guarded. How are we guarded, he says? How do we appropriate God's power, he says? Through faith. And remember, you can have faith as a five-year-old or faith as a 55-year-old. And it's the same faith. It's the same leveraging faith. It's the same exponentially differential of mustard seed faith throwing mountains into the sea faith. See, what he's saying is this same faith that brought us into the kingdom is the same faith that allows us to persevere in the kingdom. It's that same faith, that everyday faith saying, Dad, I didn't realize how bad it was in my heart. Golly, I didn't realize how hard the Christian life would be. Golly, I didn't realize how underappreciated I'd be at work. Golly, I didn't realize how hard it'd be to raise these kids. What's beckoning us at that moment? What's pleading at that moment? It's the call of faith saying, will you still trust me? Will you still avail yourself, as you did when you first became a Christian? Say, ah, I need Jesus so much. I need His Spirit so much. I need Father, I need your kingly power in my life and now in those every day every hour throughout the day moments he's saying it's still through faith we see that necessity but we don't just see its necessity we see the priority in verse seven so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire the tested genuineness of your faith You see, when we uh, experience suffering and we flail about in our faith, when we experience affliction, the dark night of the soul, you don't remember the last time you had affections for Jesus. You can't remember the last time you enjoyed coming to public worship. And I mean like truly enjoyed it. What he's saying to you in those moments, as we're flailing about in our childlike faith, is that there's one thing that connects us back to reality, and it's this Same faith. I know that sounds like a tautology. But what he's saying is the priority of faith is our faith is illuminated through suffering. And it's often illuminated as inadequate. Okay? Great. But that inadequate faith, God finds beautiful. Our inadequate sophomoric faith, God finds sufficient. What I'm trying to say to you is you don't have to pull it together. And be some super person. And be heroic in your exhibition of faith. I'm just saying, fall upon him. Cast yourself upon him. I collapse on him. That's the better metaphor of faith. A fallen down faith. A collapsing faith. And that's the imperishable nature of it. That's the truth of it. That's the faith that will actually last and be proven more valuable. So what does that get us? If we see its necessity and then we see its priority, what does it bring? What are the the fruits of faith? Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let me just say it as plainly as I can. If your faith isn't causing you to increase in love for Him, That faith has a different purpose or direction. That's a self-directed faith. That's a faith that is perhaps in faith. That's a faith that's perhaps in religion. That's a faith that's perhaps in moralism or do-goodism or whatever it is. Being a nice, upstanding, loud and county person. And what he's suggesting is the mark of faith, the primary chief fruit of faith is what? That you might love him and believe in him and rejoice with joy in him. Now I know you're just like me. You struggle to love, and you struggle to rejoice, and you struggle to find great hope and comfort in him. Now I know y'all, y'all believe right that stuff, okay? Good Presbyterian people, you have all the right theology there's this great big disconnect, of course, between our theology and our affections. Jonathan Edwards said 300 and however many years ago that everybody finds Jesus useful, but only Christians find him beautiful. And if Jesus isn't beautiful to you, then this faith hasn't laid hold of its true object, its true source. See what I'm pushing us toward? To push toward Jesus and not toward your bootstraps. To push toward Jesus and not just toward the escape of these afflictions. To push toward Jesus and say with faith, This is your best for me. And that's the hinge. I mean, that's the pivot for most of us, isn't it? I I can't tell you how many people call me and come into my office and they're crying their heads off and they say, How could God possibly love me because of this? Where could God possibly be in light of this suffering, difficulty, affliction, heartbreak, disappointment? And the pivot, the hinge there is, is would we believe, could we believe, that everything that's occurring in our life, even those afflictions, is God's best for you? And I think that's the gut check. If you, though sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will you, heavenly Father, give good gifts to you? What's that in the context of? If you ask for an egg, will He give you a stone? If you ask for bread, will your Father give you a snake, serpent? He's saying, "Listen, I know you're asking. I know you're struggling. The best thing Christians can do for our non-Christian friends is start showing them what it's really like to be a Christian. Okay, it's the best thing we can do." And please don't think that the best thing we can do for our non-Christian friends is try to be better than they. Because frankly, it won't work. I know Loudoun County people. And they're like better people than I am, right? They're nicer people. They're better parents. They're better workers. They're certainly smarter, more creative. If I try to out-moral the moral, guess what happens? I lose, and I don't get to tell them about Jesus either see, our message, of course, as Christians, isn't that we're better than anyone. In fact, to the contrary, it's that we're so much more messed up than they. We're so much more aware of our failures than they. We're so much more desperate for another than they. And see, what we're pointing them to is this. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we love Jesus. That's why we hope in Jesus. So what are we done here? I know you're, you're, you're struggling here. You're saying, OK, suffering's real. Suffering drives me to Jesus. Faith is necessary. It's indispensable to connect me to Jesus. But you're still like, okay. You wire me out. Get me to Jesus. And that's why we got to finish with this last point, which is, of course, that your love will deepen when you see His beauty. It's another way of saying that God's love deepens our appreciation for the gospel. You want to connect this faith thing to Jesus, then what do you have to do? You've got to start with, end with, have the middle of your time with God's love. It's God's love that will drive you to faith. It's God's love that will sustain your faith. And what is the faith, do you remember? It's God's love impelling our faith forward that does what? That allows us to push into the suffering and the affliction and not be martyrs and not be angry and not get all frustrated and brittle and prickly with everybody around us. To not be disconsolate and downcast. Why? Because we really do see our God, our Father at work. Well, where do you see God's love deepening our appreciation? Look at verse 4. Notice what he says there about this inheritance. It's kept in heaven for you. Or in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. What do you see in both 4 and 5? You see God's protection. And I don't know if there are anything uh, more encouraging than that. That no matter how much we screw it up, no matter how much we fail, no matter how much we doubt, no matter how far we run away, that God will protect and guard you. That God will lose none of those for whom his son came. And that's the hope of our hearts, because if it was dependent at all, and I mean literally at all on us, we'd be in real trouble. Because we all have these insidiously rebellious hearts, these intemperate lives, these terrible anger tempers, lusts and frustrations and jealousies. And no matter how ashamed we feel about them, the over drinking and the overeating, the pornography on our screens, no matter how much we hate that, stop that, why do I keep doing this? I'm yelling at my three year old kid. We can't seem to stop. And we have growth and we have progress and we have maturity. But we certainly have nothing, nothing that approximates sinlessness in this life. We're always failing. That's why we need His protection. That's why we keep turning back to this He guards me, He keeps me, He will bring me to His bosom. But it's not just His protection that awakens our love, it's His pursuit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. What did he do? He caused us to be born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What's the basis of the living hope? What's the basis? It's that we're born again, and what's the basis of that? Is his causality, his causation. Here's the great news is that he's done it is that he has pursued us. And he was pursuing us when we're shaking our fists at him. And he keeps pursuing us when we give him the finger. And he keeps pursuing us when we give him the shoulder. And he keeps pursuing us when we give him the hands on our hips and the clucking of the tongue and the tapping of our toe. I mean, he knows. He knows. But remember, Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve he loves, and he loves, and he loves some more. And if you doubt that, all you need to do is what Peter did here. And that source, the love in the resurrection of Jesus. You doubt, you wonder, is he smiling today? Is he frowning today? Is he downcast today? Is he ashamed of me today? What is he? Well, his affections, the father's, are set and fixed entirely upon Jesus. And I will tell you, Jesus is well-pleasing to the Father. And we are in Christ Jesus. We are united to Christ Jesus. And so when he looks at us, scoundrels, rascals, that we are, what does he see? He sees Jesus. When we bring our failures to him, what does he see? He sees Jesus. When we bring our shame and our degradation to him, what does he see? He sees Jesus. It's that relentless pursuit that brings us home. It's that steadfast protection that keeps us home. And then finally, it's not just that, but it's his promise that drives us home. To an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, you're there talking to these people that are being impaled by the emperor, and covered with pitch, and set on fire to light the emperor's court for his games at night. And those are the people to whom you're writing. And they've been cut off from their family land they've had for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're cut off from everything they know. And the world seems at war with them. What would you say to them? How might you point to them, direct them? Notice Peter's tactic. He says, you are safe. Your inheritance is secure. Your future is guaranteed. What he's doing is he's lifting our eyes. And so pulling our heart with our eyes. To all that's coming. And all that is. It's not just by and by. Pie in the sky. Tomorrow stuff. It's today your inheritance. Today your inheritor. Today you daughter of the king. All that's his is yours. You notice what he's doing? He's saying okay sure. Sure. This would be overwhelming and consuming if all you did was look at the national debt and the rise of the Sino Empire. And you look at the outbreak of swine flu or avian flu. If you look at all the crime going on, if you look at the difficulties in my family, if you look at the cancer call we got from the oncologist, if you look to my divorce, if you look to that abortion when I was a sophomore in college, you see, when you look at those things, the abuse you endured as a child, what's the only answer for all of those deep, searing sufferings? He keeps taking us to the future. Because he's saying as a Christian, your future is now. You have entered into that promise today. This is your life today. And it depends not one whit on how well you do, how well you perform, how nice you are. Now I know some of you think that would make you lazy, indolent, cavalier about holiness or obedience. I say to the contrary, when you've been loved like that, that'll make you want to love. When you've been pursued and protected like that, That'll make you want to obey because he's the safest, most secure thing in your life. You're always being disappointed. Why? Because you keep wanting to make the most safest, secure thing in your life. Your what? Your job, your 401k, your marriage, your kids, your friends, your future. And he keeps saying to you, that won't ever fix you. So I have a friend who is uh, a minister, I'll say somewhere in the Midwest, and he has a challenging marriage as a pastor. And the reason his marriage is so challenging is that his wife has a pretty significant mental illness. And they weren't really sure what was going on. Of course, they first thought it was depression or different things like that until she began to threaten her own livelihood and safety. They weren't really sure what to do with that. And he's a minister. He's got this reputation to uphold. So he goes to his session. He says, I really need to um, care for my wife a little differently. And what that needs to look like right now is um, I need my wife to come to work with me every day. Because I need to be with her all the time. And they said, okay, okay, sure, sure. So she began to come to work with him every day. She would find ways to uh, sneak out and. One night he uh, rolled over in bed, and she's not there, and hear the car running in their garage. and she was seated in the car, of course, and he was able to pull her out and get her some help, and her life was spared. But after that, my friend, this pastor, went to bed every night with a leash with a tether that he would tie to her and tie to himself. So that if she had to get up and go to the bathroom. He'd have to get up and go to the bathroom. And then he put an alarm on their door. So in case somehow she got out of the leash. If she opened that door. It'd go off. And he did that night after night after night. For about six and a half, seven months. Imagine what that's like. And she began to get help. And they began to address the issue. And she's you know much better. To, they've had two children since then. She's you know. Tip-top, I'm sure she will always struggle with bits of that, but she's far better. But imagine if you're that woman and you think about your husband, you're mad at him, you're angry, frustrated at the dishes or the clothes or the callousness or the thoughtlessness, whatever. You think about how many nights he tied himself to you to save you. How many nights he went with you to the bathroom night after night after night to protect you. My guess is that might change your affections. And then think about our Father who tied his Son to us. And Jesus forever took on humanity. And Jesus forever came to earth and became the God-man, forever. And he tethered himself to us, why? It's to protect us. It's to keep us from our own destruction. It's to make us know that we are loved. You see how that love might change our affections? How it might awaken in us a new and deeper hope that I can endure, I can persevere, I can be patient, I can fight this besetting sin. Why? Because love is increasing this feeble faith. And that feeble faith is looking my suffering square in the eye, the afflictions, in it's saying, you don't own me anymore. My Father owns me. And he says, I'm beloved. Let's pray together. And so we ask, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would give us more of this Jesus. That you would show us what it means to be loved at an incredible cost. That you would remind us that Jesus paid everything to win our love and make us holy. That the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the grave of Jesus all led to this resurrection and ascension of Jesus that now makes us free. And so we need help. We need help stopping trying to be nice people. We need help being willfully rebellious people. We need help trusting. We need help with our anger and our suffering and our bewilderment and our despair and. Increase our faith and increase our faith by giving us more of Jesus and give us more of Jesus by opening our eyes to his promises, reminding us that in him, we really are the righteousness of God and do all of these things for your glory. For we ask in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit.